G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm on the eve of the Vuelta España and I thought I'd sit down with Lionel to introduce the next episode. Welcome Lionel. Hi there Mitch. It's uh, well it's just gone mid-October and you're getting ready for a three-week grand tour. It must feel really quite strange. The, the days are getting shorter, the temperature's dipping a bit. What's it like there in uh, in Spain where you are? I tell you what, it felt like today the break of spring. It was a very, very weird feeling because it was like a bit cool in the air. The sun was breaking through and I thought, this feels like a day just after, you know, Paris-Roubaix and I'm just starting to get myself ready for the next block. And I was like, hang on, it's the end of the year and I'm about to step into the Vuelta España. It doesn't feel like I'm on the eve of a Grand Tour, let alone the Vuelta. So... It is a very surreal feeling, but on the other side of things, I'm very much looking forward to doing a big race and making 2020 all worthwhile with, you know, a a big race at the end of the year. Well, it is the day after the Tour of Flanders, so I suppose you weren't that far wrong. It's very, very unusual, though. It is very unusual, and it's very unusual watching these races and everything being out of sync, and it is just a bizarre sort of season, but, you know whatever it was two three months ago or maybe four months ago i was very skeptical that we would get this far and i'm very happy that we have got this far i never thought we'd be able to do all this and race so late but it's amazing um what you can get yourself to do when the circumstances are changed so who's in this week's episode of life in the peloton mitch I've got an exciting episode this week. I thought it'd be very good to bring this episode up because I originally want to release this when the Vuelta Spaniel was originally on because today I'm talking to Greg Griffiths, who is a UCI international commissaire, and he is from Australia, and I sat down with him over the summer when I was in Australia. He actually doesn't live too far away from me. He's from Melbourne. And we were talking about when I see him at the Vuelta Spaniel, and I take note from him popping his head out of the top of the car there, And I thought, great, this is going to be a great episode to release just before the Vuelta. So here we are, a little bit delayed. We're on the eve of the Vuelta. I thought it'd be great to hear about behind the scenes from a commissaire, what they actually have to do, how they can unpack the rules, how they make those decisions, the daily life of a comm. So it's a pretty good episode. I hope you enjoy it. Sit back and enjoy. Greg Griffiths. Well, welcome, Greg. Greg Griffiths, that is, UCI International Commissaire. What I want to say to you first off the bat is the last time I saw you, I think was about stage 15 at the start at the Vuelta España. I was sitting there nervously on the line. You were there in your smart white shirt, just stepped out of your red car. Just had a, We just had a casual conversation on the start of the line there, and I went my merry little way up the road, and you went your merry little way back into the car. And that was that. Was that the last time we saw each other? I think it was, Mitch. Um, and thanks for coming along tonight and having this chat. It should be interesting for us both, I think. What I wanted to ask was, what did you actually do from that stage at that point? Because I went up the road and I had a hell of a day following the wheels, but then you stepped into the car and what happened from that moment? First thing, I wound the windows up. Second thing, I put the air conditioner on. <laughs> Unlike yourself, I had some comfort for the day. But um, you know, the job as a commissaire is to make sure that the race is run fairly and within the rules and safely as well so you know during the day we just concentrate on all the things that can happen in a bike race with 170 or 80 riders all right well then let's let's take it back a few steps from there because now everyone's hearing that international commissaire what does that actually mean and all sports have a referee commissaires are our referee and to go back to the beginning what is a commissaire well, I guess firstly, explaining that to other people, you usually have to explain that it's, firstly it's a French word, so it means an official or a referee, as you've mentioned. Also, it can be a judge. So a commissaire at a bike race can be someone who judges the finish line, who follows in the car to watch the race evolve. And this is on the road. There's also track commissaires and mountain bikes, so all the disciplines have their own commissaires. But uh, it's just the, the officials that adjudicate on the race. So it's a, like a soccer referee or a you know, Aussie rules umpire, so same type of thing. Well, then how do you become a commissaire and why do you want to become a commissaire? Because you, you were a rider, an ex-rider. I raced against you, a very good rider along your way, but then you decided to make the switch to be a commissaire. Yeah. Well, I raced from 1971 uh, until 2002, so it was a long time, uh, not internationally as you, as you race yourself, but at a high level in Australia. 
Um, I had a bad crash in 2002. I'd already done some commissaring prior to that at uh, club and state level and even became a national commissaire in 2001. Um, And I could see that I was nearing the end, so had to plan for the future. A lot of my peers were becoming coaches and I could see that that side of the sport was oversupplied, if you like. There was, you know, a million coaches. and. And um, probably in later in my years as a rider, I was starting to get a little desperate in some <laughs> manoeuvres and I probably spoke to a few commissaires along the way. And I guess I thought perhaps I could do as good a job or a better job than some of the people I dealt with. So I, I proceeded further. So uh, I think 2000, I was a state commissaire, 2001, a national commissaire and 2004, an international commissaire. So it was quite a fast progression. And they are the levels. That was another question I wanted to ask you. They are the levels... Is that all there is, the three levels for anyone no. out there? Well, for uh, start, if you're starting off in the current regime, it's there's a club commissaire, which is something that parents often do online. It's just a, a course to make people familiar with the regulations, and then they can officiate a club race and help out around the club. So if you're doing a Northern Combine road race out here in the suburbs, you can be a club commissaire. Yep. Is that all do, it is? You can do it, be a club commissaire. So it just means, firstly, that um, as a commissaire, you'll have a licence, so you'll have some insurance. So mm-hmm. that's um, obviously important. You know, if you're racing at a road race, accidents can happen. You can be on the wrong end of the law. So it's, it's good to have some uh, insurance. Um, also, you've got the knowledge of the regulations, or at least some knowledge, so that you can assist younger riders and club riders who don't perhaps go to bigger events and uh, have more rules to follow so it's a starting point so as riders starting off start at club level so can commissaires and then so take me back to the beginning how do you become a commissaire how does that process go about is it just simple course and how did you go along those steps so quickly as you said i guess um i didn't do it there when i started there wasn't such a thing as the club level um so I just started at state level. The next year happened to be the uh, there was a national championships at Vodafone, and they held a national commissaires course there. And I thought, well, I can do this, so I did that. That's the tracking centre of Melbourne, yep. Vodafone Arena. Correct. Yep. yep. Um, so we there was about fifteen of us, I guess, did the course. Um, I think most passed. I was the top of the class. That was good. Nice. And then I was approaching the age of fifty. Just sorry, just to be top of the class, do you think that was just purely because of your cycling knowledge or just because a combination of things? I think it had a lot to do with it because when I did the state course in 2000, I think it was, I was also the top of the class at the state level. So even though I'd never done any commissary, when I did the course, I was had the top marks in the class. So um, obviously 30 years of being a rider, I knew a lot of not everything, but I knew a lot of what should happen and what shouldn't happen. And when questions are asked, I knew what was right and what was wrong, even though as a rider, maybe I couldn't find that line sometimes. Um, you know, it's just came a little more naturally, I guess. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, you've run through the different levels of commissaring and the qualifications. Define the role of a commissaire and let's maybe just jump to your level because that's probably a bit more familiar with people listening out there. They're watching the Tour de France they're watching the Vuelta, they're watching the Paris-Roubaix on TV and they're policed or refereed by you in, in a lot of those races. I see you overseas as well, as, a, as, as well as races here in Australia. But what is, what is the official role of the commissaire on the day? Well, actually, it starts before the day, which yeah. is um, often unknown by a lot of people and that's perhaps the pur- purpose, one of the purposes of this podcast. You know, mm. People can learn these things. But if I'm, a, a, I'm appointed or any commissaire is appointed by the UCI, usually we find that out in October for road events. So for the coming season, then we accept the appointment or not. If you accept, then you contact the race organiser, uh, get all the details on the race. If you're the president commissaire, then you need to make sure that all the requirements are there for the race. So to do with medical, police, uh, road. So there's a bit of paperwork involved. So th- there's a lot of work prior to the event because mm. you don't want to just turn up to a race in well, I did a race in Uzbekistan last year. You don't want to turn up to a race in Uzbekistan and find out there's no police, no ambulance, <laughs> because then the race doesn't happen. So yeah. you've got to make sure that all that infrastructure's there prior. Um, also, we would receive the entry list of all the riders. We have to check on the UCI web shop, website to make sure that those riders are currently registered with the team that they're entered with. Wow. Make sure that the... Every rider, yeah. Yeah, every rider. So, And you, as you'd be aware, there's now the UCI ID the 11-digit code, so that needs to correspond with each rider, so we need to make sure that that's correct. Then when we get to the race, we meet with the organiser, 
uh, make sure that all the things he said are in place are in place. Mm. So you try and meet the doctor, meet the TV people. Does all that come back on your head? For instance, you check something or you you happen to look over something just quickly because of the whatever's happening on the day and actually something happens in the race for instance you go there had to be this certain amount of police and there wasn't that many and you just missed that in the check is that back on your head then if something bad happens then yeah, yeah can comes be. back on the commissaire yeah, yeah. so because you're the final we're, we're the representative of the uci so even though we're volunteers in effect um there's often or most often not staff from the uci at the event so that's the role of the commissaire to ensure that the race has what it's supposed to have mm. no, the riders are professional the teams are professional so even though we're not professional we need to act in a professional manner and ensure that the, the field of play if you like is you know safe Fair. for you guys yeah. you know yeah and so because how many commissaires we have on a given day because i often notice there's com one com two com three in the cars is there more guys out there that i don't know about is there guys behind the scenes oh, are you sounding worried mitch you think well i'm just <laughs> thinking that's a lot of work and i'm thinking surely that's got to be split up between a yeah. few guys there's generally depending on the level of the race there'll be either three or four commissaires in cars so right. commissaire two is the commissaire that travels in front of the race from the start and then will drop behind the breakaway once the breakaway establishes if there's no break what do they do just drive in the front have a great day they drive it yeah but they don't have a great break great day because he's generally looking around waiting for the break to come so he ends up with a sore neck <laughs> so you know that's a bit of a pain but uh, then com one is the the main commissaire he's behind the peloton in the car then commissaire three will be halfway back in the convoy and if it's a bigger race there'll also be commissaire four and races in australia such as the melbourne to warnable we have up to commissaire nine so there's all groups a and lot stuff. of commissaires because it's a big long race with a lot of riders so you need to have coverage for all those groups what's the prestige position if you get it drawn out you're like you're com one is that oh com one's you're the you're the boss of the race so that's the main main role and it's it's also the most work so why from, so well there's all that work we mentioned prior to the race so uh, that lays on com one com job. one does all that hmm. But also after the race, then you've got to write a race report. So, you know, often if I'm doing a race in Europe, the race report takes the 12 hours that the flight is coming back to Australia, you know, so it um, needs to be correct. The UCI, as I've mentioned, are not at the race, so they need to have all of the information on the race. So you need to write a report, and that's sometimes I find probably the hardest part of the job is finding the time to get the report done before you, before you go to the next race yeah. you know which might be the next day for instance so so is that all just notifying things that went wrong or is it just giving a whole general report of uh, you've, there's lots of the, we've got a new report form which is um, very detailed when it covers everything from safety uh, riders accommodation oh really uh, meals um, you're kidding me flights to and from how would you know about the meals and stuff just hearing complaints well or yeah reports i mean go around the teams and ask a couple of team managers is, has there been any issues so going back to the comms and their positions you got com one who sits behind he's making the fight does he make the final call on what has to happen that day no each commissaire works autonomously so apart from the four that i've mentioned in the cars there's generally two on motorbikes as well okay. plus the judging panel and sometimes um, if there's intermediate sprints or KOMs, they'll be along the race. So they can also, um, if the race splits up into eight groups and you've only got four commissaires and two on motorbikes, you've got a couple of groups perhaps without a commissaire. So if a judge is available before they have to go to their next point, they can be with a group for a while. So, Do they have commissaring capabilities, judges? Yeah, but they would... There are they are commissaires generally oh. in an international race there'll be national commissaires so if it's at the Vuelta they'd be Spanish commissaires okay so they're national commissaires in Spain yeah right. um, but generally they wouldn't penalise someone they would report to the chief if there was a problem right can you tell the difference as a writer a judge just looking at them to compared to a commissaire will they wear different clothes and at stuff? an international event the the UCI commissaires will be in a red generally a red car not yeah. always but generally a red car and we'll have the UCI uniform. Um, at a national event here in Australia, likewise, the commissaires would have a, a national uniform on. It's good to so know because, like, if we're split up into echelons and I just see a judge next to me, I know I can maybe get away with a little bit here and there, and he's only going to report it back to you. Yeah, but if he's got a phone and he, he videos <laughs> yeah, you, and, right. and and these days, like any evidence is evidence, so that's right. You know, yeah. don't do the wrong thing, Mitch. <laughs> I was just thinking about you know, <laughs> maybe getting a sticky bottle or something. Uh. 
Well, that, that's obviously one of the favourite things and it, um, people, like I work in a bike shop, people come in and talk about watching the tour or whatever on TV and they're all talking about the sticky bottles because the commentators have mentioned that and some of them, some people think it's actually sticky. You know, it's, it's, just, lo- it's just being held on to at yeah. 60k an hour. Yeah. I love making the joke when I see one on the TV. I'm like, geez, there must have been a fair bit of honey on that bottle. His <laughs> hand got stuck on there yeah. for ages. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I do want to talk about that. There is a bit of a grey area where stuff can, like, for instance, uh, getting bottles from the car. At what point is it all individual Uh, judgment on that? Some guy might be like, if I don't see that, if I see his hand on there for more than one second, he's done. Another guy might be like, three, four seconds, that's fine. Yeah. And I think it is pretty much up to the individual, but also the race situation comes into account. Sure. If the bunch is going along it, 30k an hour and, and then the pressure's not on and the guy's holding onto the bidding for 10 seconds it really doesn't matter yeah. he's chatting to his manager he's not gaining any advantage as long as it's not on a climb sure um, but if the guy's obviously half cooked and he's about to go out the back and he gets a bottle and it's a sticky one and he comes back then that's not fair on the guys that have exactly. that dropped him so there would be a penalty in that case but if Another situation, uh, a rider comes back to get six bottles for his team. If he gets a sticky bottle just to maintain speed, he has to sit up, free wheel, mm-hmm. put, the, put the bottle down his jersey. In the Vuelta, say, 40 degrees. Yeah. yeah. Loses 50 metres each time he does that. As a commissaire, we would accept that he's going to get a sticky bottle mm. to get him back to the position he was so he hasn't lost 50 metres every time he gets a bottle. Otherwise, he's out the back and his team doesn't get fed. So... That's right. It's just a bit of common sense, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You explained before that you get your program presented to you by the UCI, where you can select how many races you want to do, and is that more or less how it goes? Do you have to do a minimum amount of race days, and how many days would you do in a typical year? Uh, it varies from year to year. Some year, like this year's an Olympic year, and I didn't get selected for the Olympic Games, um, unlike the two previous Olympics I've been to. So in the Olympic years, you get a lot of races because the UCI wants you to be sharp and and the commissaire panel will have worked together at previous events through the preceding season so that they're used to working with each other and they know each other's style and and how to work with each other. So in an Olympic year, if you're on the Olympic Games, road or track or whatever, you'll do more events generally than you normally would. Um, This year I have um, the two World Tour races here in Australia plus the road national championships next week then i've got a race in the tour of taiwan then i've got a track race in bundaberg should be exciting are, are they all by choice or is that you have to do different levels no no, no the uci appoints you and also part of my, my responsibilities i work on the uci commissaires commission hmm. so i'm helping um train commissaires around the world and ensure that we've got commissaires in different parts of the world so that everyone doesn't have to come from Europe to a race in South America or Australia or wherever. Wow. So we've got the plan is, and we're slowly working on that, to get bigger, broader group of commissaires around the world so that there doesn't have to be, firstly, the expense of sending guys from Belgium to Peru or wherever, you know. Yep. So we have some South American commissaires. So that's one of the goals, and um, I'm sure that will happen because we've got plans in place for that. But. So the UCI points commissaires, sometimes it's based on region, but in the, my, say my case for the um, World Tour races here in Australia, there's two president commissaires. One is from Spain and one's from Belgium. So the three of us will do the three races, or the, sorry, the two races, three races, the women's race as well, but um, I won't be the chief. So generally you're not the chief commissaire. In your own in country. In your own country. Okay. So, it's, so it's impartial, and when that report that gets written that I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah it's not you're writing a port report on... Your home country. You know, some, you know Scott McGorry's race that, yeah. you know, we've been mates for 20 years. Um, and you feel it's, like it's hard to rip shreds off him if it's necessary or whatever. It's just going to yeah. be biased. It just needs to be... Yeah. Um, unbiased. It needs to be unbiased, but needs to be seen to be unbiased. Like, I would be unbiased anyway. Yeah. But, um, you know, it needs to be seen to be fair. And even in a way, I don't know about this for you, but I would be happy with that because, like you said... There's going to be people that you know, and it would be... i just naturally be biased without trying to be. It'd be hard to... I th- i would think anyway. I think that would be a nice situation yeah. not to do that and be come to a race in France where you've got no connections or anything and you can look at it on with fresh eyes. Yeah, well, that's, that's the system that's used and it works really well. And you asked about the number of races. Um, last year, so 2019, when I saw you in Spain, 
Um, I was four weeks at the Vuelta, then went to the Worlds in the UK. So I was away from home for six weeks. Mm. So, you know, that was a long stretch from Australia. It's a long way to, to go to be away for six weeks, just following bike races. So, Do all you guys hang out at nine, all the commissaires, all the comms? Uh, depends on the situation and the race. Like in the UK, it was early starts and late finishes, so there wasn't much social time afterwards. We had dinner each night and a glass of wine and then into bed because mm. you know it was up at eight o'clock the next morning to do it all again so the Vuelta was a bit different um we Spanish eat late so um after a stage you know so we had some transfers sometimes but you know generally the commissaires try and be social mm. um we usually during a race we communicate on whatsapp so there's then often quite often a hangover after that so yeah. you know i had christmas wishes from the spanish commissaires oh, yeah, you know, so that was nice yeah. so it's a good bunch of guys yeah generally we've all got the same things in mind you know we're all in sport because in the sport because we love it yeah none of us are doing it for the money because there isn't yeah. you know there is none really we're volunteers <laughs> so yeah oh fantastic all right, well, let's get into some, some hard questions now for you. What's the hardest part of the job, would you say? Is it that time away from home or is it making those... What is it? What is the hardest part of the job? I think the hardest part can be if is lack of preparation. So if mm. you go to an event, and this is probably more so with track racing, I guess. I'm also a track commissaire. Because there's so many disciplines on track and there's a different... or different events on track, sorry... This different regulations for the sprint, the Kieran, the points race, the Madison, and you've got to know all those regulations. Mm. So before each event, I'll read the regulations just to make sure I'm familiar with. Are they slightly changing over the years? Yeah, they are too. And that's um, also anyone who's yeah. checking the regulations should make sure they're reading the most current yeah. ver- version of that, not a book that was printed five years ago because it'll be different. So you always need to look on the ECI website. Um, check the current regulations and I find that makes things a lot easier if you've recently read something like a day before it's fresh in the mind the race is there you think oh, I know what to do here because this is, I've just read it you know so okay. so I think um, being prepared helps avoid those difficult situations but then there is difficult situations where uh, you've got to disqualify someone such as the, at the world championships the Dutch oh. Dutch rider who was um, there you go mo- sticky bidden yeah. well, well motor pacing for yeah two and a half minutes um, as a panel you know we all went into the TV truck after the race saw that and it was unanimous that it was <laughs> couldn't be allowed so yeah. unfortunately it was you know a situation after the race but um, the right decision was made I completely forgot about that that's Any, right anyone, that, so that's a difficult difficult decision like that's the world championships it's not the club race at Lansfield that you know yeah. yeah and that's the thing too I remember when we were sitting back in the hotel thinking about that we are like it's a difficult position because he's a young guy and potentially in the future coming up you know that would have meant a lot to him and I'm not going to say it would have been better to do it to a, a senior pro but in a way it might have been but in the end of the day if he starts learning that way that's also not a positive thing either. Yeah. Well, as a rider, you, you're not a commissaire, but you know if you do that, yeah, there's only one thing that's going to happen. Exactly. If you get sued, you get disqualified. So. And also, it's it's just like if you get away with it, you can all you're always going to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. I've always said this to someone else. If I get dropped and I can finish without it being ridiculous, I just finish every race. And uh, this guy I said to this guy one day, he's like, "Yeah, it always stuck in my head, and I always finish every race now because." You can, you know, and it's a good thing to do. And it's, if you just keep pulling out of races, yeah, all of a sudden you just keep doing it. And I think it's it's, it's a bad bad habit. So yeah, I mean it's the same thing. Uh, even just getting dropped, sometimes like as a commissaire, I know when I was a rider, I used to hate to get dropped. So mm. when I did get dropped, there was no coming back because I was shot. Yeah, but you see, so many guys they just they're on the back, and then all that you can see they just turn the switch off. That's a mental decision. They just drift off the back, and and then five kilometres later they're back they're only 50 metres back because they can still get there you know they they haven't really fought hard enough in the first place so how is that actually I was going to ask you now what, what is the best part of the job what is it like watching the race from that close are you able to observe it as a bit of a semi fan and see some guys there you're like wow this is interesting watching them go over this climb 
or you have to be too switched on in the moment that you can't take it in no well like if the race is six or seven or eight hours or whatever there's obviously moments when you know the race is just on and there's no t- team cars and TV motorbikes are probably the two mm. things we have to watch most. But once the riders are racing, you know, there is that chance just to be a fan, if you like, and watch the race. Um, so usually when team cars are involved or dangerous sections of road or things like that. But, um, you know, it is, it's the best seat in the house. Mm. If the Peloton's 170 riders, you're at the back of that group. You can't see the action at the front. So sometimes being a motorbike commissaire at the front would be better but then it pours rain occasionally as it did in Yorkshire so that wasn't much fun (laughs) and also there is I I always see the comms going down the hill and even the the um, I spoke to Graham Watson on the podcast earlier and one of the questions I asked him was about being on the back of those motorbikes because one the weather element and two just the sheer speed they have and way they get past the riders and he just said he had to find a driver that he trusted and he always travelled with that same motorbike on yeah yep and Graham was probably an interesting guy for that uh, job too because he used to wear shorts and a short sleeve shirt no matter what the weather was so he would have got very wet a lot of times and very sunburnt a lot of times but know. he took some magnificent photos so it was great too you'd see him sometimes in the peloton once i got to know him a little bit he'd look across in the racing and you just see him right there you're like g'day Watto. he's like yeah. g'day mitch how are you <laughs> you know it was, it was a cool little thing to have yeah, yeah. We spoke about the hardest part in that preparation what is the actual worst part the bit that you dread doing is it that report um, I guess what I find difficult is, say, take for instance this week, I've got the Road Nationals coming up, mm-hmm. then Tour Down Under, then Cadell Evans race, back to back to back, having all of those races in my head, mm. because I'm at work, we're quite busy, yep. So, and I've got a family yep. and a dog, so there's a lot going on, yeah. and... Um, so that's probably what I find the most difficult is fitting it in. Is fitting it in, and when I'm thinking about tomorrow's race or this week's race, and then someone asks me a question about next week's race or the one after, mm. and to because the answer may not be the same for the three races. So that's that's what I find difficult. I yeah. think is juggling and having a lot of things on my plate. Yes, yeah. but I read a my father got a book for Christmas about Peter Brock. Oh yeah, and uh, there was a quote inside the back cover. And Brocky said, um, bite off more than you can chew and chew like buggery. And, and I guess <laughs> that's, that, what I, doing. that's what I'm doing. I've bitten off not as more than I can chew, but it's certainly a mouthful. And I'm just going as hard as I can. It sounds very much like, and I'm not going to say I'm that busy at all, but I think one thing when you're professional, you always, it's a bit of a different scenario, but you're always traveling. You've always got that suitcase ready, a bit similar to you. And I think one thing I might struggle with when I stop riding is not moving for a period. And maybe that's with you, it's, it is a lot to go, but it's something that's exciting for you all the time. You know there's something always around the corner and maybe you like that style of life or you must. Yeah, well, I'm very fortunate. I met my wife at a bike race and we've been married 40 years now. So, um, and she understands, you know, I've been a rider for a long time, not at your level, but still trained five yeah. or six days a week and raced three days a week and holidays with bike races and you know that's been our life for a long time and then I became a commissaire and got busier and busier so that's evolved and as a couple we've become used to me being away for a while we've got a nice new dog that <laughs> keeps her happy and company while I'm away um, and you know we try and have a couple of holidays overseas each year so mm. you know it's not just a juggling actually yeah, balancing yeah, it. yeah yeah it's yeah. like life in general isn't it you've yeah. got, to, got to get things right all right well tell me what is your um personal highlight you did touch on some things there being over there and and seeing the riders up at that close is that is that your personal highlight of the job has there been a moment that you've really um that like that is a highlight is seeing like the Vuelta that we spoke about that we're in last year some of those mountain top finishes were just in crazy places so yeah. you know seeing riders actually ride up those roads including guys like yourself who are not climbers exactly. yeah you know that was that was tough so that was was impressive so i was really glad that i saw that but as a commissaire you know, I've, as I said, I've been to two Olympic Games, yeah. uh, two Paralympic Games. I've been chief for the last two Commonwealth Games. So you know, those are sort of highlights for me, I guess, is, uh, you know, being officiating at the highest level. I was the chief commissaire at the London Olympics for the mountain bike event. Wow. Um, I was the only commissaire that did both Olympics and Paralympics in London out of all the commissaires. 
uh, in Rio. I was the chief commissaire for the Paralympics and I was a judge referee on the track and I also did the road. So I was the only commissaire that did all of that. So, you know, that is was... That quite a, is just hearing all that, is that quite an uncommon thing for commissaires to go across so many disciplines or everyone has to be able to do that? Uh, for London, um, after sorry, after the London Olympics, that was that was my last event as a mountain bike commissaire. Okay. Following that, we had to specialise. Yeah. So there was virtually road or off road, um, road including track. So road and track commissaires. Thin wheel racing and fat wheel racing. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So um, I was as a rider more a track rider, and yeah. I was even though I'd done the Olympic Games as a mountain bike commissaire. Um, track was my main interest along with road so I decided to go the road and track route rather than mountain bike um, and then at the next Olympics in Rio I did the road the track and the, then the Paralympics as well so that's sort of the highlights for me I guess is being in charge of an event at the very highest level so mm, yeah. awesome that's awesome what has been the hardest commissarying decision you've had to make over your career I remember I didn't realize it was going to be a difficult it wasn't a difficult decision at the time when I made it but the result of it was difficult uh, the world champion track championships again track in Minsk um, six or eight years ago I was the judge referee and I disqualified a rider from a sprint in the points race he'd won the sprint but he rode illegally to win that sprint so I disqualified him from that sprint or relegated him and at the end of the race, he missed out on being world champion by about three points. So, again, like the the Dutch rider at the Road Worlds, yep. you know, disqualifying or relegating a rider for something he did and then find out afterwards that it's going to cost him the medal. But it's the right decision to make because he did. So I've tried to look at most decisions as based on merit rather than what the circumstances are, whether it's going to cost a rider a contract or whether his manager's going to be upset with him or he's going to be angry or whatever, you need to look at the circumstance, make your judgment based on what's actually happened. Yeah, rather than take that all in and then let your emotions take yeah, over. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Have you had any mistakes along the way and what has been the biggest mistake if you've made one? Uh, I'm sure I've made one. Um, that you can remember. You're like, you yeah. know what, I was wrong there. Um, I try not to um, dwell too much on the bad things. Um, <laughs> no. Um, Sorry. I'll say that I don't, I'm sure I've made mistakes, but none that have been bad. Yeah. Um, I try and prepare well, and I guess this is why I get a number of appointments, either from Australian or the ECI, is because I do a good job, so I hope that's the case. You yeah. might know of some mistakes I've made. Have you, well, you can should you remember have, any? you should have let me hang on to that bottle for a few more <laughs> K up that last climb in the Vuelta. No. <laughs> Um, no, that's okay. That's good. That's a good point. Then you know, if 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 you were like, well, there's so many that spring to mind. I'm just going to have to choose one. That's a that's a horrible thing. And I think you pointed it out. There's a reason why. Yes, I'm sure we all make mistakes along the way, but um, there's a reason why you're getting appointed. All the all the races that you said and the the, the caliber of races is because you're not making those big mistakes, which I'm happy to say. And I've just been watching the cricket. And one thing I'm I'm really not liking at the moment is the DRS, which is the um, even know what DRS stands for. Video review, though, yeah. whatever the DRS stands yeah. for. Yeah. And I just hate that because now the the umpires there are completely undermined. Every decision they make in that split second, they get put straight up against, you know, like all this technology. They can barely find out the decision in the end. So mm. I like the fact, the human element, that yes, umpires can be wrong sometimes in cricket and in, in cycling sometimes there is a, a wrong decision but sometimes there is a right decision it's just the, it's the way the game goes yeah and i think that that has to stay the human element well we're we're all human the riders the team managers the commissaires as well and um often a team manager or a rider will make a mistake and sometimes it's bad enough that we have to do something about it other times it's not something that we act on immediately but perhaps speak to them after the race and say look you did this today I don't want to see that again or you know some advice like that and I guess as a commissaire too if you make a mistake a manager or a rider will certainly come to you and say that wasn't right actually you ask about mistakes I've made perhaps in some races I've made a barrage too soon or too late or not long enough or mm-hmm. I'm sure that sort of thing has happened because race flu- situations as you'd be aware fluctuate sometimes so quickly um, and sometimes we think a break a bunch is going to been dropped is going to stay away and we make a barrage just explain a barrage for anyone out there who doesn't know exactly what that is 
if the race splits and there's a likelihood of team cars can be between the front group and the next group and assist the dropped group to come back will actually stop the team cars behind the group uh, until the gap maybe 30 seconds or a minute let two or three team cars forward to go to the front group so it's called a barrage again a french word but it's just it's a barrier just so that the cars can't get into the gap so mm. that's probably in a big road race one of the main roles of the commissaire is to ensure that the race is ridden by bike riders not by cars yeah actually that's probably i didn't think about that that's probably one thing that does bug me a lot because often i'm trying to come back from getting dropped on a climb and i know it's the rule but i'm trying to get away with it as much as i can and all your all your hope is if we can just get to the car convoy we're gonna make it and then all of a sudden you're like geez that car convoy is coming back quick yeah and then you realize it's been barraged but i understand why it happens it's only that we're on the limit and we want to get back in the race. Yeah. That we just want any way you can get back in that back. Yeah, there. for sure. And um, it's a bit like earlier we we're talking about sticky bid. And sometimes it matters whether that group's barraged or not. Yep. You know, if it's a sprinter and we're thirty k's from the finish and the rest of the race is flat, we don't want the sprinter coming back unfairly. Yeah. And and then beating the rest of the guys in the sprint. So um, barrages, we do look at who's in the group, whether it's actually going to matter or not. Mm. But if it's towards the end of the race, you know, if there's still 180 kilometres to go... And there's find, been a crash or something yeah. even. Again, in the Vuelta, the, the day there was the big crash, and I think your team lost a couple of riders. Yeah. Um, we just let the riders come back behind the car because it was carnage. It was in a sharp corner. The, the cars couldn't get to the riders. There was guys over the fence, and it was a, a real mess. So just because it was early in the race, well, like I think stage four or five... Mm. Um, early in the stage as well you know it was important that the race still had 150 riders not not 60 riders left in the race for the next two weeks so yeah. you know so we need to take that sort of thing into account and, and be realistic and be fair can you discuss that between the three comms or someone whoever's near the situation will just make that decision or is there a continuous conversation going between everyone i wouldn't say it's continuous but in that case um i think that day i was Commissaire 3. In the Vuelta, we rotated positions each day. Okay. So COM 1 was always COM 1, but COM 2, 3 and 4, we would rotate each day. And I think that day I was COM 3 because I was behind that crash. Um, so we would talk a little on the radio, but not continuous mm. because each of us, even though we're numbered 1, 2, 3 and 4, we all have the same qualification and authority to do something you know so so you just you don't need to discuss with so-and-so about making a decision no, you just need to make that decision if you're uncertain you would certainly consult the chief and say this has happened what do you think yeah because ultimately uh, it'll be the chief commissaire who has to speak to the race organizer yeah. or to the team managers at the end of the day and write his report to the uci who does the um flag out the top of the sunroof in at the start of the race in some races it's uh the commissaire two oh, yeah. who's the official in front and by the regulations that's how it should be but it's usually the race organizer or someone from the race organization oh, yeah. is that a good job to do um oh, it's a bit of fun i guess yeah because you'd be out the roof and talking to the guys and you know and it's not your car so they're not rubbing the paint off your bumper bar you know <laughs> yeah. it's someone else's car like everyone wants to be motor pacing so uh, but sometimes it's a bit stressful. Um, I was COM2 in the Sun Tour 10 years ago, maybe, and uh, we're neutralised coming out of this little town. And we had to go at a moderate pace because someone had punctured in the neutral. But all the guys at the front wanted to go hard. And I had riders all around the car and a couple trying to get in front, and it was just almost out of control. So. That bugs me, actually, even as a rider. I, just, I think probably one time in my career I was one of those guys. But eventually you're just like, this is... Just respect the commissaire, stay behind the car, and let's get this race started. Yeah. There's guys trying to get in front of the car, and yeah. for everyone out there who doesn't understand how a road race actually starts, is we roll out from the start village, and there can be any a neutral can be anywhere between one and what's the official twenty k. Yeah, Some are pretty long, yeah, yeah. and there is a red. There's a car in front of us pacing us at a slow speed. And then they drop the flag at kilometre zero and we all race. So that's what I was asking Greg about. Yeah. So when that approaching kilometre zero, the chief commissaire who's behind the race, he will have noted the riders that have stopped for mechanical reasons and it's 
unbelievable how many guys have gear problems and punctures in the neutral like in uphill starts too oh it's i'm just, loving that it's it's crazy <laughs> but then you know it's it's only fair that those riders are actually at the start when kilometer zero arrives so if they've stopped for a nature break then that's they're, their own they're on their own but if a guy's had a mechanical then sometimes we go past the kilometer zero before we actually pull the flag in yeah yep. well i'll just ask you one last question What's your favourite race to Commissaire? And you did mention a couple out there. And different, one, two questions. What's your favourite race to Commissaire, but what's your favourite race to watch? Is it a different thing, I wonder? Uh, I'm sure it is. I don't watch many races. If I'm at a race, I'm commissaring. Um, favourite races, I guess, in Australia, probably my favourite race weekend is the Bendigo Madison weekend. Wow. Uh, I go up to Bendigo for three days and a couple of days of track racing, but the Madison on the Sunday night, you know, I raced that a number of times myself as a rider. Yep. And it's, you know, it's a great race and nice atmosphere and a nice town and nice people. So, you know, I find that really enjoyable, Bendigo, that long weekend. Do you commissaire that? Um, or you just watch it if, as a... No, pub? no, if I'm in Australia, I've probably done six of the last ten or something like that. But mm. if, you know, I've been away other times, but I try and... If the UCI point me to an event, I'll go to the UCI race. But if they haven't, then I'll try and do the Bendigo weekend. So mm. as a someone who raced in, like first raced in Bendigo when I was 15, that's a long time ago. I won, actually won the race there the first weekend. I raced there when I was 15, so that was a good memory. Um, I raced the Bendigo Madison a few times. Um, Did you so, win so, the Bendigo Madison? No, no. I got fourth one year. Um, but um, I actually got fourth twice, I think. But yes. Yeah. Not better than that. So that's one of my favourite local races. Obviously, doing the World Tour races in Australia is also good. Tour yep. Down Under is a super well-organised race. Great location, being based at the Hilton Hotel. Roll out of there every day. It's very easy. Come back it's lovely. For riders, teams and commissaires, it's it's fantastic. Um, the Cadell Evans race with Shalambra Hill. Yep. You know, as a commissaire in the car or a spectator on the side of the road, that hill is unbelievable and yeah. I can't believe Tor Hushov won the world championships around there for a guy as big as him I think you're explaining the only people who enjoy that hill the commissaire in the car and the people on the side <laughs> of the road the people in the middle of the road riding up there they're not liking that at all I can tell you are you sure yes I am sure <laughs> so they're probably the in the local races um, overseas I've done the Torino Adriatico a couple mm. of times in Italy and that's a really nice race. Um, again, good organisation, RCS, who do the most of the Italian races. Um, Have you done the Giro? No, I haven't done the Giro, but mm. I've done a lot of their other races. I uh, did Milan San Remo, mm. Strada Bianchi, Milan San Remo, a long day, um, 300 kilometres <laughs> at 40k an hour, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's a long long day in a car. Um, yes, yeah, so I guess there's yeah. some, of the, some of the races, yeah. Right. Well, Greg... Thank you very much for having a chat to me. And next time I see you, we'll probably be on the other side of the fence. But I'm sure we'll get to have a little smile and say hello. Well, maybe like in the Vuelta, we'll get a photo together. Yeah. <laughs> Did you end up getting that photo? No, I've got that photo. Do you? Yourself and the other mullet from New Zealand and, and myself. So I'll, right. I'll send that on to you. Yeah, great. I'll put it up on the website. So Shane Archbold, Mitch Docker and Greg Griffiths. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, good, Greg. Good on you, Mitch. Thanks. Well, there we have it. Now you're going to know exactly what's going on in the race coming up in the next month with the Vuelta Spania, but also for the races in the future. I thought it'd be good to get that little insight from behind the scenes, how all that stuff happens, how they let the sticky bottle hang on or not hang on. I don't know. What did you think, Lionel? Did you get any good little snippets, little insights there from Greg? I did, yeah. I mean, it's always um, there's always a sense in the peloton when there's, you know, 150 or 180 riders um, it, it tends to be whether you get spotted um, just bending bending the rules too far rather than, you know, the, the commissaires able to uh, penalise every single infraction. And I guess there is a little bit of that, isn't there? It's a, there's kind of a, there is a kind of a, a, a sort of grey area and then the, the commissaires are using their discretion as to when they apply the rules um, strictly and, and when they don't. I mean, I guess that's something that you get to learn with experience. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. And I think one thing that I really loved about talking to Greg, and I've known Greg for many years, but 
you sort of build up this barrier between it's maybe like a teacher and a student all of a sudden you see your teacher outside of school and they're just a normal person and that's obvious but in school they're the teacher and that was the same thing with the commissaire it's like they're the comms where the writers there's this oh these police type feel about it but sitting back talking to greg and hearing about what he does with his family and his time away and it's really a, a job out of love he said there's not really much money in it you like hang on the comms are just normal people and i know it's a funny comment to make but i love that he just sort of broke down that barrier especially for me and explained it and it just gave me a little bit more sympathy to them and like sometimes you you're really getting pissed off in the moment but actually they're just trying to do the best they can out there and just like us they're they're just doing the best they can and they're, they're human so i thought that was a quite a nice element over the course of your career mitch have you have you racked up a few fines here and there and how how does it work when we see the communique at the end of a stage of a grand tour and and it says who's been fined for what infraction often it's it's the fairly minor things such as uh you know uh, like you say a sticky bottle or um another one you know that obviously has to be penalized because uh you know it kind of brings the race into disrepute is if riders stop for a pee break in you know close proximity to the public that's another one that often gets fined um but in terms of the over the course of your career uh, you know have you been a pretty good boy i have got a few fines along the way but you don't actually know you're getting the fines there's not like someone coming up giving you a red card um and that sometimes does frustrate me because i'm thinking i don't know did that actually happen you know it could be you threw a bottle in a yeah this is actually what happened last year in the vuelta they put out a pretty strict rule about throwing bottles away they try to nullify it and they said if you throw bottles to fans or people on the side of the road that's okay but if you throw bottles just aimlessly into the forest or somewhere you're going to get a fine and we just seem to be racking up fines after fines this is our team and me even i haven't got a few and i'm thinking i don't know about this and it was quite frustrating at the time and it sort of made you think about what you're doing and whether this is because it was very very hard to police if you're in the middle of the bunch and you hoist a bottle out of the peloton it was very difficult to police so it is difficult sometimes to receive those fines because there's no moment where you got it and you think oh that was from that exact moment there obviously there are cases where i have actually had a bit of an argument with a a motocom um, about barraging us and we're trying to get back and I I received a fine for that um, and I knew exactly about that but those other ones are a bit grey and you just got to accept it sometimes because that's the way it is and and that's the sport you know if you think about any other sport um, they're now bringing in the video refs and things like that which is something I don't necessarily like I think the human element is part of the sport you know if you think of cricket or tennis Uh, it's just getting a little bit too complex for me. So I hope we don't go down that line. I do like that. And I have to accept that sometimes, you know, some decisions aren't exactly correct or maybe you don't agree, but that's just the name of the game. Yeah, just on the, the the throwing away of the of the bottles. I mean, they have introduced the green zones now, haven't they? Which were, which give the riders the opportunity to uh, throw bottles and and any other waste away uh, where it will be picked up and and collected, uh, almost like a, a rubbish bin um, along the course. Uh, just explain that term barraging. Uh, that's basically um, using the convoy, the cars in the convoy, as a slipstream to to bridge the gap back up to the peloton after you've had a either a crash or mechanical i mean it's again it's one of those things that we see so often and there's almost an indefined line isn't there between what's what you can get away with and, and, and when you're kind of taking the mickey really yeah i think when when there's been a crash or a puncher nine times out of ten there's a blind eye look to turn to someone using a, the convoy or an individual car to slipstream back to the peloton that is sort of an unspoken rule and like i said nine times out of ten that is the way it happens and they 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 allow you to come back that way when the barrages happen is normally when the peloton is split on a climb and we're trying to when i say we often me trying to come back from the back um back you know you're with a small group you're trying to catch up to the peloton on the descent and the convoy behind you know it could be up to sort of 40 cars behind the peloton um that's quite long so if you can get to the convoy essentially you're already in the peloton but that that could mean you're almost like a few hundred meters behind the peloton 
So what the commissaires will do is they will just make that whole convoy following the peloton stop on the side of the road. So all of a sudden you think you're going to get back to the convoy. You know if you can get in the car convoy, you're going to eventually get through the slipstream and get back to the peloton. All of a sudden you've got another 200 meter gap or whatever it is. It could be even 500 meter gap of cars just move out of the way and then you've got to close that again. Um, and when you're on the limit and you're trying to come back and it's very crucial at that moment and that that car convoy gets moved out of the way barraged out of the way it can be so frustrating but it, it is the rules you know and like I said before sometimes that doesn't happen and you're lucky enough you get in that convoy you get through the slipstream from the cars maybe grab a few bottles on your way through for your teammates and get back to the the peloton and you're back in the race until you hit the next climb that is but um it is it is a part of the racing and it can be quite frustrating when uh, you do get barraged at the pointy end of a race or at the pointy end of a, a grand tour that is and there's the commissaires in the cars but there's also um commissaires looking out for infringements and just kind of refereeing what's going on i guess on motorbikes isn't there that's right yeah they're, they're just floating around between all the groups because once um everything splits up over these climbs or even in the in the cobbled races over the cobble sectors there are certain groups trying to come back and team cars can get in between those groups and actually help riders to get back or that's generally what they're trying to police is just slipstreaming from team cars um, and they're just monitoring that and making sure those groups stay separately or they're using the right way to get back you know just physically riding back yourself so there's plenty of comms out there and um like i said i hope that did give you a little bit more of an insight to how the the game is policed out there i do want to say a very big thanks to everyone who got in on the caps the talking luft caps or the life in the peloton cycling caskets because they ran out the door again they've all sold out unfortunately but i've been loving the pictures coming in everyone is certainly getting them their self around luft and talking luft some epic pictures coming in of those caps i'm loving it so thanks guys thanks again for listening and coming up next week there'll be another talking luft in two weeks time another podcast so look out for me on the vuelta espana and thanks again for listening you have been listening to life in the peloton the producer of this episode was will jones the music in this episode was composed by pete shelley thanks mate